Hey, hello everybody. I uh, just want to give you a quick heads up. This episode has some great conversation, but we get into some pretty dark subjects. Uh, content warning for some suicide talk. Two numbers I want to give out are the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 and the Trans Lifeline at 877-565-8860. Take care of each other and yourselves out there. All right, thanks. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Once again, you are listening to Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person. To the Wrong Person? What the hell is the name of my show? <laughs> giving the Mic to the Wrong... You are listening to Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person. Oh, get it right one of these times. This is, at least we're... This is the fun of uh, broadcasting to tape instead of like to the uh, to the uh, to the real world. Is that we can at least, like, you know, assume that I can like, cut and edit this stuff. Or maybe not. Anyway, uh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and, and everyone in between. You are listening to Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person. I am your host, Jeremy, coming to you from a lovely, this will be like, what, a late June Tuesday evening here in strangely sunny Portland, Oregon. Joined once again by uh, old friends and new, and uh, to bring you another important in scare quotes, um, uh, dispatch of info and infotainment, or something like that. Anyway, going around the room, uh, uh, first, if I'd uh, like to uh, introduce uh, my semi-regular co-host, uh, who has been, join- uh, who has been um, quite generous with her time, especially since uh, her day job has her uh, fighting the man, uh, sometimes literally, sometimes not. Sometimes, literally, sometimes not. Hey, everybody. My name is Kenny Luis Herrera. I am your friendly neighborhood staffer and a uh, very casual, ho- uh, occasional ho- co-host of this show. Uh, thank you. And our, v- our very first uh, candidate here on our show, as well as a member. Oh, good. <laughs> what's the... What's the uh, what's... Uh, to 2.2 2. points up. With how much... With how much... With, with how, how much report? reporting. Nailbiter. Mm-hmm. There we go. <laughs> we got uh, we there there we're, we're we're recording this right as the uh, live election results are coming in from the Queens uh, DA race. So, folks, you might just hear a live reaction in vaguely real time. Anyway, new guests, could you please introduce yourself to the viewing audience? Hi, thanks for having me on. I'm Paige Kreischman. I am running for the Oregon House of Representatives in District 42. I'm endorsed by Portland Democratic Socialists of America, uh, where I serve as the electoral and legislative chair. I'm also a board member for Portland Tenants United, the largest tenants union in the city. But I was not aware that I'm the first candidate on this show. Uh, I was not told that. So um, now I'm now I'm got big shoes to fill. Now I'm now I'm all nervous. <laughs> there you go, Jeremy. <laughs> Oh wow! Okay, when you put it that way, I guess I'm fine now. Okay, I'm good. I'm good. Let's do this. Thank you, and uh, and thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm Brian Blanc. I am a Portland DSA member, uh, and I'm serving as our membership working group co-chair, and uh, also part of the uh, team bringing a potential Bernie campaign to the chapter for general membership vote uh, in a couple weeks. Excellent. And uh, but I wanted to bring it because let's see, Paige, you have just recently announced your candidacy, and uh, plus I had uh, talked to you. God, it's been like two months ago. I think it's about being on the uh, about being on the show too. So I uh, figured, you know, the, the, uh, as I'm also shocking as 
oh, damn near everybody hearing this would probably figure it out. I'm, uh, the rest of us are also DSA members, too. So we figured uh, this would be fun to have everybody in. Because I am that imaginative a questioner, <laughs> tell us your story. What's your basic, how about, you know, your, your basic candidate pitch? Either, uh, and feel free to answer this either from a biographical side or from a platform side. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I think right now is a really important time for us to be putting forward our democratic socialist vision for the state of Oregon. Uh, this last legislative session that's wrapping up right now, we've seen uh, a tremendous amount of compromises and handouts to the corporate class, to the corporate lobby, of which democratic legislators in Oregon take thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars from every year. Um, and we've seen that manifest in a rent control bill. Uh, I'm doing air quotes when I say rent control uh, because it's a rent control bill that caps rents at 7% uh, annual increases plus CPI, which is 10.3% for this year, uh, which is absurdly high. I, I don't know anyone who can afford a 10% increase in rent. And that was openly negotiated with the landlord lobby and the realtor lobby. Then we've seen a student funding package, a school funding package for uh, K-12 through that uh, provides an additional $2 billion per biennium to uh, public schools, um, which is unfortunately only half of the necessary funds to meet the standards uh, set, laid out by the quality education model from the state. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, um, it's $2 billion short. It's also about 10 years too late. Um, it also includes an amendment to, um, to ban local commercial activities taxes from uh, city, uh, county, and district governments. Um, and that was openly negotiated with Oregon Business and Industries uh, between uh, Kotech and Courtney, the Speaker of the House and President of the Senate, respectively, uh, openly negotiated with the largest business group in the, in the state, Oregon Business and Industries. Um, and Oregon Business and Industries openly flaunted and in emails to their members um, that they struck this deal with Courtney and Kotech to water down the bill uh, in exchange for not challenging on the ballot. Uh, of course, it is still going to get challenged on the ballot anyway. Then, funny how that works. Yeah. Now we've seen a already weak cap and trade, market based false solution to our climate crisis um, that has been lobbied for as the preferred climate solution by the corporate lobby for the last forty years. Uh, get continually watered down with exemptions and handouts to to big business. Um, is now been uh, effectively declared dead just today. It was effectively declared dead because uh, Republican uh, state senators fled the state in a standoff with state police, which they threatened to shoot. Yep. Uh, and then teamed up with right wing uh, fascist militias. Yep. Who laid siege to the state capitol. I'm. This is this this. She's literally true. This is yeah. This happened. This yeah. This is not exaggerations. This is exactly how mainstream news is reporting this. Um, laid siege uh, to the state capitol, shut down the state government for two days, um, and are still a all the the Republican uh, state reps, state senators are still a wall. And now the bill has been declared dead by the Senate president, um, which is really a, a fitting culmination. Uh, a, a real poetic sum of what we've experienced here in Oregon this legislative session. We elected a Democratic supermajority uh, that has so far totally disappointed. Um, and I, I know that um, working class people in Oregon know that this isn't how it has to be, that we can do better than this, that uh, a better world is possible. When our state reps come to our town halls and look us in the eye and say this is the best that they can do, that this is the best that's possible, we know we know that that's not true. We know that 
when working class people come together uh, and stand with one another in in solidarity that we can we can win true meaningful transformative changes so that's what my campaign's about we're fighting for an Oregon Green New Deal we're fighting for transformative campaign finance reform we're fighting for real meaningful housing justice uh, we're fighting to defend our worker and labor uh, uh, rights we're tr fighting to defend our unions uh, who I forgot to mention uh, actually probably the biggest most shameful um, act that our democratic supermajority uh, and took this took this legislative session was voting to cut our public employee pensions um, our Democratic supermajority voted to cut public employee pensions in the state of Oregon by up to 12.5% at the time of retirement for Tier 2 beneficiaries. Um, and this was a shocking betrayal of our unions done by Democrats uh, that were elected in part by union support. Um, so we, we believe that, that we, can, we can do better. We believe that Oregon um, can be better than this. We believe that uh, we can fight for and win the progressive values that Oregonians hold. Um, and we're going to do that, and we're going to do it together. Sweet, excellent, uh, well spoken. Um, you was this uh, had you? What what was the process that brought that brought you into uh, deciding to, to you know run as a candidate? Because you you are currently your yeah you are co chair of the electoral group, correct? Yes. Okay. And, and I believe, and, and I think I've 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 actually uh, sat in on your you have a presentation um, that was given to a bunch a couple of us about you know just going beyond endorsements um, of like why you know say leftist chapters like say DSA would want to you know go beyond just endorsing a particular care particular character yeah I guess that character and candidate hopefully your candidate is a character because otherwise how are you gonna get traction nowadays. Um, could you talk about what led you to uh, decide, you know, <laughs> what led you to be getting uh, either deciding to or getting press ganged into uh, being, um, you know, just deciding to run for office? Yeah. Um, well, I never I never imagined that I'd ever be a politician. I'd ever be running for office. It's definitely not uh, <laughs> definitely not the life I thought I'd be living. Um, the dirty know. electoralism. Yes, for sure. Um yeah, if I uh, my dream job, in fact, is to be be a be a chef. So if I wasn't a politician, I would probably be I wouldn't be a chef, right? Because I'm poor. I'd probably be a line cook trying to save up money to go to culinary school at night or something. But I would want to be a chef. But anyway, um, I didn't really have much of a choice, right? I mean, it's just the material conditions that working class people are subjugated to under capitalism and other supporting power structures in this country really forces myself and a lot of other people um, to to have two choices, either fight back or, or die. Um, and um, I'm a trans woman. I was born in rural North Carolina. To um, you know, my, my parents were evangelical Baptists. They were white nationalists. They were um, they were not a good 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 place to be for a young trans woman in rural North Carolina. Um, so I I didn't really have the opportunity to. Um, to, to have a type the type of to, the life that um, a lot of other people um, have I my only choices were to, to fight back or die so um, my politics being political is not really a choice I'm just like a lot of other people um, probably a, a lot of people in this room and in DSA we're just trying to fight for our lives here against capitalism and the heteropatriarchy and white supremacy and colonialism and imperialism um, and there's a lot of different ways we can do that so that gets into why your second part of your question why should DSA be running our own candidates um, 
and that is um, that is because from our perspective, we don't want to just prop up the system. We don't want to just prop up capitalism and defend capitalism, maybe reform it. We want to, we recognize that capitalism is a fundamentally uh, isn't a broken system. It's working fundamentally exactly as intended, and that the problems that we have in capitalism are. Uh, part of the structure, that we don't need to fix the system. We need to build an entirely new system, a better system, a better world, uh, and that's democratic socialism. And we can't get to that. We can't do that if all we're doing is endorsing the most progressive uh, capitalist-supporting candidate that comes our way every two years. Um, if we're going um, to get to that world and we're going to build that world, then we have to start putting forward our own vision with our own candidates. Um, and that that has to come from the bottom up. That has to come from uh, grassroots electoral organizing. It has to come from 100% people-powered campaigns with no corporate money. Um, and we're starting to take those steps. Um, we're, we're doing that here in Portland. There's uh, other DSA chapters all across the country that have been doing that, um, from Bernie Sanders running for president to uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, down to local school board races. Uh, uh, we just had um, a DSA candidate elected to school board in Corvallis here in, in Oregon just in this uh, last special election in 2019. Did the, the, uh, that, the, that, so that election actually happened? It's already happened, okay. Yeah, it was uh, the May 2019 special election. That one was it, okay. Um, yeah, and Brandy Fortson, a DSA member in Corvallis, uh, became the first openly non-binary person elected to public office in the country uh, when they were elected to school board, and that's... That, I think, is what what our electoral struggle is, is really most important, is at the local level, uh, we don't just need, I mean, we do need to elect uh, Bernie Sanders to the presidency, but we're, we're not going to build a better world by electing a single president. We're going to build a better world by building a movement from the grassroots, from the bottom up. Uh, and that that starts with school board races, with city council races, county commissioner races, state house and state senate races, mm -hmm. uh, but even lower on the smaller scale, that starts with just organizing in our communities. Um, even outside of the electoral realm, it starts with uh, building um, building the socialist movement and the socialist base beyond just electoral voting, beyond just a voting base, but a true revolutionary class conscious base uh, that you know uh, supports union organizing, that um, does mutual aid projects and um, is organizing to spread democracy in all areas of our life, not just at the ballot box. Awesome. So, it, okay, so sometimes our our, um, our worst enemies are, you know, folks on our side. So, you know, other other leftists might ask, what are the limitations of running socialists in a what is effectively a liberal democracy? Well, I mean, we have to understand that the system is rigged against us and not in our favor, that we have to fight twice as hard, three times as hard, or, or many times as hard as the capitalists do to get every little ounce of power that we can win in an electoral system. And that fundamentally the electoral system is, is not set up to allow us to transform society in the way that it needs to be transformed. Um, so we have to recognize and acknowledge that the type of movement we need to build to succeed needs to transcend beyond the electoral realm. Um, and in that regard, I believe that electoral politics is a tactic, not a strategy. That we're not gonna um, we're not gonna win socialism at the ballot box um, alone. Anyway, you know, we're not gonna vote in socialism. We're not gonna vote away capitalism. But the people we vote for can help us get there uh, by winning a platform, creating space in the discourse, by stressing the contradictions of capitalism and the liberal state. 
Um, and then also, once they are elected, maybe we can't win transformative, maybe we can't win transformative um, mode of production type of uh, victories in a legislature, you know, because if I get elected and I introduce a bill that uh, says private property is banned in, in Oregon, then it's just going to get struck down by the courts, of course, right? Um, but then we're stressing the contradictions, then we're asking the question of um, why, um, why is a system this way? Why is a system set up to not allow the people um, to democratize this, their society. Um, and that's, that has to be done in tandem with the movement um, across all realms of organizing. It has to be done in tandem, especially with union building, because that's where our real power is, not at the ballot box. Our real power is in the workplaces. Our real power is that, uh, our real power is in our positionality within the capitalist economy, that we, we make the trains run, we drive the trucks, we work the docks, we uh, produce all commodities, all value is created by labor. Um, so an organized class of workers can shut down the economy at will. That's where our power is. Um, and, but we're not going to be able to use that power unless we're, we're organized. Um, and we have to do that not just at the ballot box, but also in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods and in our communities. All right. Um, one of the, let's see, I always think I should write my questions down, but it's kind of a thing where I'm, just, I'm way too stream of conscious to actually uh, to ever go off of questions that I would have written down like you know a couple hours ago. So I always kind of like go off the cuff. Um, do you want to talk about uh, uh, I guess changing the race that you were gonna that that you that you decided to contest to contest to contest? That's how you pronounce that word. Um, sure. So we were. Over- there was originally talk of um, me potentially primarying Kathleen Taylor, the the state senator in my district, um, because she's she's taken a lot of problematic positions um, uh, in the past, and ultimately she's more conservative than her electorate is, um, and so we put the pressure on her, and we've been pressuring her for a while um, to to re- reduce or eliminate the corporate campaign contributions that she's taken in, and she's scoffed and laughed at that. I met her in her office and had a conversation with her earlier in the year uh, where um, we mentioned uh, how, how often I'm dogging her at our town halls and et cetera on campaign finance uh, stuff with, with all her corporate campaign contributions, and she laughed and mentioned that she's not going to stop taking corporate campaign money. I'm like, but you could if you wanted to. We, you know, This is Oregon, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then she told me that she sleeps fine at night with all the corporate campaign money she takes. So um, she's not a she's very much not very very progressive, even in the in the very liberal mainstream sense of the word. Um, but um, she took the right position on the purse vote, which is something that uh, I was very grateful for, uh, to see her do. I was very, you know, I was very proud to see my state senator stand up to Peter Courtney. Um, and and stand up for the rights of, of workers and and defend our, our public employees um, and and I don't I do not think we should be primarying anyone at this time when we have so few state senators that will stand up for unions we should not be primarying them no matter uh, no matter how much corporate campaign money they take at least this year you right. know maybe in a couple years when we have but there's there's much more um, important. Um, races for us to run people in if if she is going to take that position. I'm very glad she did. I'm, I would much rather not run against her and have her take good positions uh, than the inverse. Right, and I should, uh, full disclosure, she is also my state senator and and uh, uh, as I do reside in her district and and in I reside in House District 42 which is where uh, where we are sitting right now. So you'd be uh, you are be campaigning to be uh, my uh, state house rep. So 
should you win, we get to uh, yell at you now. But what's, that's the what was the old line of like once the uh, once the person you support uh, wins, it's like the the day after election day. It's you know it's your the day after they get into office is the next day. It's your job to you know to go there and pick a fight or something like that. I can't remember how that line goes, but yeah, that's effectively the DSA endorsement process. <laughs> yeah. As it should be though, I yeah. think that's how it should be, right? Yeah. Because you know, I mean, as friendly as you think politicians are, you know, myself included. Um, if we're friends, at the end of the day. I I'm getting elected to represent you to in to in in office, and if I'm not going to be held accountable, um, then I mean, not everything else might as well be thrown out the window. Um, you know, we still have to hold the people that we elect accountable, and we do that by constantly keeping the pressure on them. And if that means going to town halls and yelling at them when they take bad positions, then please do come to my town halls after I'm elected and yell at me if I take a bad position. But I don't plan on it. <laughs> stick a pin in just in in the whole like art uh in um yelling at your electorate officials uh brian to bring you in um sure what's um you uh, you are helping out with the campaign correct uh with pages campaign yeah. yes okay let's see what what uh what kind of uh what made you decide to kind of uh to I don't want to say take an active role because that sounds corporate as fuck. Um, <laughs> what was your th- uh, why did you decide to pitch in? Um, and or or rather, hit, I get, what's what's a decent metaphor? Hit your wagon, pitch in, help, I, join up. What made you answer the call? There you go. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't really a call. Um, yeah, it's usually like Jungian, Campbellian, Petersonian language. Yeah, yeah. I mean, literally, Paige called you. <laughs> That's how it works. Uh, I'm interested in building Portland DSA, um, and uh, I think one of the skills that I bring is kind of working with um, like demographic data and political data and all that kind of stuff. And like I think that uh, our campaigns really need those skills, and so I, I just am kind of trying to plug in where I see myself being most useful to the chapter um, and. You know, I, I see Paige's campaign as um, an engine for growth, um, you know, and hopefully, obviously, hopefully we elect Paige as well. Um, and but I'm, I'm really invested in growing the chapter. Um, you know, I, I also think that uh, working with Paige a couple months before she uh, decided to run, um, you know, she not only has pretty defined politics, but she's also willing to just put in the like elbow grease type work. Um, sitting on the computer and doing spreadsheets and um, looking at the numbers and figuring out like, okay, where is the best district to um, target? And you know, like, I really respect that, that kind of uh, um, thoroughness. And yeah, and all the and yeah, all the time driving those, you know, driving that hour down to Salem. <laughs> yeah, that yes, too. my back hurts from driving to Salem <laughs> twice a week. That would really. That's yeah. I'd recommend getting one of those. Even like the like the little like cheap like seat inserts can help out a lot. Yeah, I got one of those. Okay, good. My back still hurts. Oh, <laughs> that's rough. That's okay. Yeah. It's a hard knock life. You know what are you gonna do? If there's no back pain, it ain't socialism. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, I was wondering what. Um, and this question is for both of you because you're effectively working together. What is your uh, long term vision? If especially Paige, um, if part of the reason that you're running is to um, expand the social discourse and stress the contradictions of our current system. Yeah. Well, I mean, first and foremost, I absolutely do intend to win. This is a very winnable race, um, uh, and we we intend and we will win this race. Uh, but there is a lot more that we can accomplish 
in addition to just winning. Uh, we can uh, we can also use it to build a movement because if we're not if we're not engaging in electoral politics in a way that deliberately uh, uplifts the other work that is going on in the movement and and builds our base beyond just the electoral sphere, um, then we're really just um, we're we're wasting our resources because, like I said, for every um, you know we have to work three times as hard or four times as hard in the electoral realm to get the same amount of power that our class enemies uh, are able to achieve in that realm. Um, so we we need to be very deliberate in how we use our limited uh, resources, mostly our human resources, because we don't really have any financial resources, right? Uh, we're we're DSA. Um, we got no money, but anyway, we do have people, and people yeah. we have a limited number of people. Um, so we have to we have to engage in our electoral uh, process in a way that um, when we go out and canvas, we can um, add um, add questions in our scripts from other um, working groups and caucuses, or maybe even other groups in the movement that are um, that may have may in the future endorse us. Um, and we can, for example, when we go out and canvas, we can ask uh, people at the door, are you a member of a union or would you like to unionize your workplace? And then pass along the, that contact info to our labor working group who can then contact them with information on how to unionize and support them through that process uh, as our labor working group has been doing across the city and in, 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 uh, uh, supporting unions that are currently sprouting up uh, all over Portland. Um, and uh, there's, um, there's a lot more value to be won uh, beyond just winning, um, which we will do, but um, we can also we can also uh, uplift the other work we do and build the movement um, because that's what that's what this is really about, not just winning one seat in the legislature. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'll just echo what Paige said. Uh, you know, I think we have to see or, um, elections as just one uh, organizing platform. Um, you know, obviously there's our workplaces and there's our apartment buildings um and even just going out in public and talking to people uh it's just one way that you engage with people and you politicize something and you get them to think about their politics um and try to push them into some kind of organization my one uh idea be like if they go after purrs again <laughs> the goal would be to have thousands of people at the capitol my understanding was when the final purrs vote got taken it was only like a handful of people there to yeah. protest semi yeah yeah it was only a handful and it um the firefighters union showed up in, in pretty good force that was really cool to see um but also it it um it came down very quickly they pushed through the bill very very quickly um uh, i believe you know partly intentionally so that um we couldn't organize very uh, effectively in opposition um state legislators uh both in the house and the senate um weren't responding to their constituents uh when they were getting emails and calls and people were going down to the capitol and just showing up at their offices to to demand um a response and um so we we um we got a little bit out of rob nose we knew that he was going to vote for the cuts about two days before it happened and that's when we were very very shocked because Rob knows up until that point had been relatively progressive, you know, relatively right for Oregon. He still takes a bunch of fossil fuel money, but he'd been relatively one of the more progressives in the uh, House. And um, he's a he's a staff member for Oregon Nurses Association. Um, he works for a union, and he works for uh, a union that represents workers who um, have their uh, have benefits in purse and the public employees uh, pension system. Um, so it was pretty shocking when we found out he was going to vote uh, for the cuts. So we tried to put pressure on him, and unfortunately, him along with a lot of others um, just totally um, shut us out. Wouldn't talk to us. Wouldn't um, 
uh, wouldn't put out a statement. He uh, he still hasn't put out a very clear statement as to why he voted for the cuts. Um, so, you know, we we don't like that we have to challenge primary challenge him. We wish he would have just voted the right way. Um, but you don't get to call yourself a progressive and then vote to cut public employee pensions. And you definitely don't get to do that and get away with it. Yeah, bringing those two bits together, both about movement building, but also the um, the kind of like having a cantankerous relationship with your elected official. One of the things that um, like have been my own my own personal challenges is kind of a thing of I don't know, increasing personal radicalization. I guess you could call it is um, how do you communicate to folks to you know because uh, we're we are emerging from. Uh, a long, long period, decades of popular like depolitization and demobilization. Like, how do you communicate to, uh, folk, you know, like I said, um, well-intentioned, um, you know, yeah, well-intentioned, like, good-hearted, like you know, kind of Portland, uh, otherwise, you know, progressive folks and beyond. That, like, you know, the whole point is, yes, it's it's great to. Uh, it's great to vote somebody, you know, somebody quote unquote good in, but the um, that you have to now that they're in, you kind of, you know, that's where the movement comes in. Like you have to force them to move. You actually have to like, you know, force them to do shit. And it's the um, it's one of the things that I've noticed that I don't know if this is just you know my uh, my uh, extremely online adult brain, but like a lot of times I've just seen you see a lot of takes and a lot of content, uh, a lot of just uh, bad culture of folks who seem to be like personally i think because they are personally conflict averse not willing to be politically uh not wanting to like bring a political conflict in and i was like wondering if you, if um you know uh page and brian if if um the two of you could talk about that about like how do you actually communicate to people like yeah it's great that you you know you know you know the knock doors and campaign and, and called for, for this great candidate but like now they're in if you're lucky you know how do you force them to do shit I don't think it's that hard, really. Um, but, you know, I think it's important that we do um, try to reach people through the electoral process because that's where a lot of the American working class is at right now. Right. When they, when they think about politics, they think about voting in elections. They don't necessarily think about politics being in their workplace and, and you know, when they go to pay their rent to their landlord uh, or in their patriarchal family structures that they are raised in. Um um, and anyway, so we need to go and meet them where they're at, which is electoralism. And then while we have them there, while we have their attention, um, show them all the other arenas that um, that their class enemies are engaging in and fighting in um, and winning in. Uh, and if we don't go there and show up and fight in those arenas, then um, uh, the capitalist class, the 1%, the, um, the wealthy, the, the corporations are all of our class enemies, the landlords, the cops are going to keep winning. Um, and um, I don't think it's once you get in front of uh, a, an average Oregonian, I mean, that's that's not too difficult of a of a bridge to of a gap to bridge. Um, you know, working class people don't need to be told that they're oppressed. They don't need to be told that their rent's too high. They don't need to be told that they struggle to maintain health insurance. They don't need to be told that they have hundreds of thousand dollars in student loans. Um, they just need to be told that a better world is possible, that it doesn't have to be this way, that we can uh, we can not only reimagine a better world, but together we can build it. Yeah. Yeah. And to, you know, bring that to the next step, you know, we have to show them that we can win, you know, like we, we can fight for things that we believe in and, you know, we can win and then, um, you know, move on to the next fight. Um, you know, this is, uh, you know, building building a movement is 
that's I'm trying to think of the right mathematical term, you know, exponential like growth process where everything is building on itself. Um, and, um, you know, you need to, uh, start small enough that you can make some wins and have people feel that they got something out of their labor that they put into this movement. And then, um, you know, you use the next stage to stress the contradictions that we need more. Um, yeah, I, a lot of just stream of consciousness, but <laughs> welcome, to, yeah. uh, welcome to podcasting. Welcome to podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> Candy, do you have anything or do you have a question uh, or a next or, or a continuation, if you will? Well, I was just going to say that. Um, so I, I compared this in my mind with strikes, right? Cause that's where my, <laughs> that's where I go automatically. And so there are limitations of a strike, just like there are limitations of, uh, like I said, running as a socialist and a liberal democracy in that, you, if you really want revolution, you would have to demand things that the state couldn't possibly provide, right? Because strikes, at least now, the way that they function, you're, o- you're only asking for things that you know that the employer can provide, right? So a raise or, um, you know, so there's social justice issues and social justice organizing, that type of thing. Um, and so there's, I mean, it's limited in that sense, right? And so that's the analogy that I see um running for office versus building a movement is that running for office you're you're operating within a really strict framework whereas building a movement you're saying no 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 no. we want more than what that framework could possibly offer i don't know if that helped <laughs> it's just a way uh that's just another way of thinking about it right yeah and then it just gets to the question of like okay then like yeah how do you build that movement and what tactics do you use um and you know as Paige said a uh, uh, an electoral campaign is just one tool in the toolbox. Um, you know, it's a place that, um, yeah, a lot of people pay attention to, and it's what our conception of politics is that you know is beaten into our heads in history class. Um, and yeah, we need to expand the sphere of politics so that people see it occurring in their workplaces and elsewhere. Um, you know, I, I think one role that an elected official can take is to you know take take the boot off the neck of like organizing in other spheres um you know to to side with unions um when they're contesting something in the legislature um you know if we had Paige in the legislature perhaps she could have warned people earlier that this pers vote was coming down the pipe and there would have been more time to organize um i don't know um, on that point, taking the boot off the neck of not just organizers, but also just in general the working class, there's a lot of uh, very real material wins that we can uh, achieve in uh, the electoral arena, in the legislative process that um, maybe aren't abolishing capitalism, but um, are uh, material gains that will have real meaningful impact on people's lives, um, You know, especially when we... Um, if we're not going to go out and show up and fight for especially marginalized communities, um, uh, then how are we going to go to them and um, ask them to show up for for us? I mean, uh, for example, um, I'm trans. So in Oregon, um, trans women are housed in men's jails and prisons. So if I'm uh, if I'm arrested by a cop, I'm not even charged with anything, just just captured by a cop, I can be uh, thrown into a men's jail um, where I'll likely be beaten and raped and uh, be uh, spend long periods of time in solitary confinement without uh, without ever being charged with the crime necessarily, um, and that's perfectly legal here in Oregon. 
Uh, that's something that we definitely can change in the state legislature. Uh, in the state legislature right now, we have a driver's license for all bill that removes a citizenship uh, requirement, proof of citizenship requirement uh, to obtain a driver's license. That's something that can have real meaningful impact on people's lives. Um, so if we're not going to show up for communities that are um, extremely impacted by what by the wins and losses in our state legislature, um, and we're not going to show up and fight for them, then we certainly can't ask them to come to our reading groups or to you know our socialist cinema club or whatever uh, whatever nonsense that we <laughs> that we want them to come to while while working class people are out there fighting for their lives. Um, Sorry, reading clubs are not nonsense. Um, <laughs> no, Jeremy, fine. write down Socialist Cinema Club. That's actually really yeah, 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 that's I that yeah I, that I, I, I've never heard that formulation before. That's really good. But um, update from the uh, the New York City Beltway, uh, one point difference, uh, less than a thousand votes, eighty-seven percent reporting for Caban. Ahead. Oh yeah, Caban's winning yeah. by by one percent. 87% reporting, though. It's too early. Yeah. Too early to call. <laughs> You'll be a long night out there. <laughs> and Candy had to silently leave us in the inter- in the interim. Grow up in uh, in uh, West of Charlotte. How did you wind up in Oregon, or like what what was the uh, what was the, uh, the the long winding trail that uh, led you to Oregon? Um. Well, around um. Well, I mean, really, when I when I say that I had to to choose between fighting back or dying, I I do really mean that literally. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, uh, trans people have really incredibly high suicide uh, rates. And, oh, yeah. Uh, being born in the situation I was born in, I mean, I was I was no exception uh, to that statistic. Uh, the first time I tried to kill myself, I was nine years old, and uh, the last time I tried to kill myself, I tried to kill myself twice. Um, I was about eleven. Um, and then after that, I decided I didn't. The, the reason I failed was because a nine-year-old doesn't know enough about how my body works to be able to kill myself. Like I, I just like, yeah. Anyway, but um, I decided that um, that I was gonna fight back, and I made a plan. Um, so sometime around eleven or twelve years old, I decided that I looked out in the world. And I decided that the only way to escape this situation, I knew I had to escape. I knew I had to leave. Um, most definitely my family, but also just North Carolina and in that area in general. Um, and the only way out of Gaston County, North Carolina, is the military. So, unfortunately, I decided to join the U.S. Army. So I joined the Army at 17. Um, and uh, any particular reason why the Army, or just kind of like this is what you decided on? Um, yeah, I I don't really remember. I think I wanted. Um, I uh, I was. It was probably a choice between the Army and the Marine Corps. I okay, wanted. There you um, go, yeah. I wanted. Um, I wanted some kind of combat job. Um, because it's it had the shortest contract length, it would have got me out of there the quickest, um, and I don't know. I was probably also a little bit suicidal still at the time too, so I was kind of hoping that maybe maybe you know I I could uh, it'd be real convenient if I like got killed in some war. But um, anyway, so I joined the army. I was uh, I joined as an infantryman. Um, went to basic training at Fort Benning, Georgia, um, w- which was you know not fun, but you know. What are, you, what are you gonna yeah. do if you gotta basic training in Georgia? Yeah. If you want to export U.S. imperialism, you gotta you gotta go down to Georgia and sweat a little bit. So I don't think anyone should, you know. Anyway, anyway. So <laughs> Fort Benning, Georgia, basic training, whatever. Um, then I went to Fort Carson, Colorado, uh, where I was stationed. I was part of the Fourth Infantry Division. Um, and I, um, I was in a armored unit. I was a, a mortarman, which is a type of infantryman that's 
um, just an infantryman that's qualified on mortars. Mm-hmm. So I was in a, a heavy mortar platoon, a 120 millimeter armored mortar platoon um, in an armored unit, so a tank unit. Um, and uh, you know, I just I I uh, I did the whole U.S. imperialism thing, which was not not good, right? I uh, <laughs> I, I I deployed once um, to. Kuwait and Qatar. It was a non-combat deployment, um, but um, I really most of the time I guarded a gate on a base in Qatar in Doha, Qatar, um, Camp Asalea. Yes, I believe I'm remembering that correctly. Camp Asalea. I guarded a gate there, um, and but even though it was a non-combat deployment, I very much was still heavily enforcing U.S. imperialism because the Qatar is absolutely a uh, like a, a white Western European imperialist, um, almost like mini colony, uh, because of because of the World Cup that's coming there in 2022, I believe. Right? Anyone? Yeah, anyone I was saying like I can't even remember because um, of like what they primarily function on like like imported workers from South Asia, isn't it? Right. So they were building stadiums for the World Cup when I was there. I was there in 2015, um, and uh, they were starting to build stadiums. Or I guess they have been for a while, um, and they are effectively using slave labor um, to do so. And their entire economy runs on this slave labor, um, and their economy runs on imported capital. So, um, you know, uh, imperialism is not just dropping bombs and invading countries. It's also the exportation of capital. Uh, there's a book, if you all want to read about that, uh, The Highest Stage of Capitalism, Imperialism, Highest Stage of Capitalism. Was Some it? guy a long time ago Some wrote guy, it. He's pretty cool. We should check him out. He liked cats. I think he had facial yeah, hair. Yeah, yeah. I don't in, remember his name. Lived, I don't know. Lived in London for a while. Anyway, so... That 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 theory of imperialism being the highest stage of capitalism um, is Qatar's a very good example of that because uh, a lot of these uh, stadiums were being built by Western-owned companies with imported labor from um, Pakistan, India, um, the um, you know Saudi Arabia, uh, Yemen, and Oman, um, and. Uh, these workers, when they arrive in country, they have their passports confiscated, um, and then they're forced to sign contracts, supposedly to get their passports back at the end of it. Um, often these contracts are not upheld, um, of course. Uh, they uh, often don't ever see their passport again, so they're often forced to stay in the country and work for um, slave-like wages uh, in terrible conditions. Um, I remember I was there during Ramadan, where the workers weren't allowed to drink water or eat during the day, but they were still expected to work 12 hours um, in construction um, during the middle of the summer in Qatar when it was 125 degrees with 80% humidity. Um, so they died a lot. There was just dead workers every day, um, all over the place. Well, I mean, not like all over the place, not like crowding the streets, but like uh, multiple workers a day would would be dying in Doha. Um, so, yeah, because I'm remembering also here, it just reminded me of like yeah, because this has been yeah, like I said, you were there in 2015, so this thing has been going on for years now. And because I can also remember the stories of when they were setting up for the for the uh, the Olympics in of all places uh, Brazil, and um, I think there were you know just the amount of um, well, we we you know it kind of it, it, it kind of like signaled the way Brazil was going to go. It, but, yeah. Sorry for interruption. Please continue. Um, so my role there was my role in this. Um, I I was a. Fe- I, the way I describe it is effectively as a um, as a slave guard because I wasn't I wasn't there to um, you know literally stop any of these workers from leaving if they wanted to, but we were the only U.S. military base in the country. Actually, I don't think that's true. I think there's some Navy presence there. Anyway, mm-hmm. we were the only U.S. Army base in only the country. Army, yeah. 
Um, <laughs> that doesn't matter at all. Sorry, but <laughs> details, um, details. Anyway, we were the uh, we were the 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 most potent physical manifestation of U.S. imperialism in the country. We were, um, and if if the workers of that in that country wanted to organize and and win their freedom and fight back against their oppressors, um, then that base, Camp Basilea, would have been the place to do it. And the people there that would stop them, that would be the violence, that would put down any kind of liberation movement in that country, would have been me. Um, so that was my role there. Even though it wasn't a combat deployment, you know, it was a pretty, you know, relatively as what we would call it a relaxed, like, uh, relaxed deployment that was in a pretty comfortable spot. Um, still surrounded by death, yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I, I very much still was very... Um, violently upholding an international system of oppression, um, so that radicalized me pretty immediately, um, and that's that's effectively how I became a socialist. Um, because when I joined the army, I didn't I didn't really think much beyond myself. You know, I was suffering so much in North Carolina that I didn't really take the time to think about what you know what joining the army even means. You know, what what that um, could could do to other people. So. Um, uh, effectively, I became a middle bully, right? The uh, the oppression of the cis heteropatriarchy forced me into a role where I became the oppressor for imperialism, and that's how that's how those two power structures interact and uphold one another and defend one another and fuel one another, because um, none of these power structures exist in a vacuum. They all they all interact and support one another. That's uh, when I got when I got back from that deployment, I very quickly became a socialist, um, and I started uh, acting like one, even though I was still in the military. Um, so. Um, around that, actually, around that time, um, President Obama lifted the ban on trans military service and open trans military service. So I was allowed to, you know, stop pretending to be a man um, and access healthcare. Um, and so I did. And um, then I also, um, uh, towards the end of it, uh, when um, when Trump was elected, he uh, um, he kind of winded back some of the. Um, uh, policies that uh, Obama put in place. Life for trans service members got really bad really quickly. I was, uh, I remember I was not allowed to live in the barracks. That was actually an Obama policy. The uh, Obama um, uh, Defense Department, their original policy uh, kind of had an oversight where trans people weren't allowed to live in the barracks, uh, but we also weren't allowed to have uh, off-base housing allowances that they normally give for people who don't live in the barracks. So you just have to like, live in a tent or something? Or? Yeah, so I was homeless. Um, I was homeless for a while on active duty. I lived in my car, and I slept in the parking lot of my, my battalion's parking lot um, at night. And I didn't tell anybody, of course, because, um, I, didn't, because I, I knew that my, my command would probably... Um, you know that that makes them look very bad to have a homeless soldier. So they would, uh, they would probably try to force me into the barracks uh, against the policy, which I actually didn't want because they would force me into the men's barracks where I would, um, I was already at this point getting a lot of like death and rape threats pretty daily. Um, so I, uh, I obviously didn't want to be there. Um, and I was, um, it was so bad uh, the amount of like hatred and and threats of violence my way that I um I carried a gun every day at work. I concealed carried a gun every day when I went into work, which is very illegal on an army base to have a have a firearm. But like, I just I figured I was gonna get murdered. Um, and you know if I'm gonna get murdered, I'm gonna take somebody with me. Jesus um, Christ! Yeah. But um, anyway, that never did happen. Ultimately, things got real bad. They got worse and worse because you know Trump kind of went down that uh, hole. Uh, spiral of you know attacking trans people um and then I, at, at a certain point i was like all right i'm already a socialist i already know this whole imperialism thing's crappy and they don't even treat me good anyway so why am i even pretending to um you know maintain this 
you know, why am I trying to like keep my head down and be, you know, because at that point I was just trying to keep my head down and make it to my um, end of service, you know, make it to my discharge, get an honorable discharge and then go off and do my own thing. But, you know, if I'm going to get, you know, murdered at work one of these days, I might as well, you know, stop supporting this war machine. So I'm dying your feet. Um, so I started protesting um, uh, in protest of, you know, the treatment of trans service members, as well as just imperialism in general. I just started refusing every order I was given. I stopped working. Um, I stopped wearing my flag on my uniform because I just couldn't stand to carry it around on my right shoulder anymore. Um, and of course, that um, that's not tolerated. I didn't last very long doing that, of course. Um, uh, every time an NCO um, uh, would tell me to do something or an officer would tell me to do something, I'd just you know, tell them to go fuck themselves, um, which, of course, doesn't, uh, doesn't last very long in the Army. Um, so I got into the situation where I, um, it was time to either kick me out, give me a dishonorable discharge, maybe even you know, uh, you know, court-martial me or um, Article 15, which is effectively the Army's version of a plea deal, which is more likely what I would get instead of just going to a trial. Hmm. Um, and you know, I probably wouldn't have um, probably wouldn't have gone to jail or faced any prison time over it. But at the very, I'm, maybe I could have, but I don't really know. I'm not a lawyer, uh, but I, I more than likely would have just gotten a dishonorable discharge. But um, anyway, coming in to save me was the white supremacist justice system in the army. So the army, uh, just like the white supremacist legal system out here, it's even ten times more racist than the army. And the army has all these loopholes and ways that they can. Um, give good soldiers, and I'm saying good in air quotes because it's really code word for white soldiers, a way out of these types of charges. And that way is, that way out is the army, um, like mental health detainment system. They have this type of system where if you're considered a threat to yourself or others in a criminal way, um, for example, um, you know, if you're, if you beat your wife or you, beat your kids, but you're otherwise a good soldier, in air quotes again, good soldier, and they want to retain you, um, then your commander, your company commander, has the authority to commit you to a mental health detainment facility, which is kind of like a cross between a psych ward and a low security prison. Like, um, and anyway, that's what my company commander did for me, because we deployed together uh, when, he was a, when he was a lieutenant, when he was like a second lieutenant. Um, so, you know, soldiers deploying together or whatever he thought he owed me something or something he thought he looked was going to look out for me so he threw me this bone um and i went to this uh mental health detainment facility it was pretty chill um like i had a cell and i was locked in there and i couldn't leave and there was armed guards but like i played basketball and poker all day and i ate pretty good food so it was pretty chill um and i stayed in there for two months and then my contract ran out and i got an honorable discharge um and that that whole system is pretty much used um, as a as a way to as a as a as a pillar of white supremacy in the military, um, there um, there wasn't any people of color in there with me. Uh, actually, there 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 was uh, one person who was in there, but he he ended up getting discharged anyway. Actually, mm. um, after a couple of days, but out of the twenty or thirty people in there with me, it was all white people, all white soldiers, um, and that's. And there's, if you want to Google it, there's data to support that about how um, U.S. Army sentencing targets and is much harsher on people of color than it is on white soldiers. Um, and one of the ways that they get white soldiers out of crimes is like that. And everyone in there was not there because they were suicidal or they were, you know, going to murder somebody. 
everyone that was in there, um, barring one person who thought he was Jesus, uh, was in there because they committed some kind of crime and their unit wanted to retain them. There was someone that got drunk and fought some MPs. Uh, there was someone who, um, uh, you know, threw something at his wife. There was someone um, uh, who cussed out an officer. Um, and, uh, yeah, so anyway, that was, it's a system to, to, to retain good soldiers, in air quotes again, uh, that otherwise commit some type of violation of UCMJ, so which is like, military law. It's kind of like a weird form of like rehab or something, or just like yeah. a, like a weird stasis thing that they can do for PR reasons, you know. So that's what that's what got me. That's what got me out. And at that point, like I didn't care, right? I, I wasn't like I didn't care if I was going to get dishonorable discharge. Like I was just, you know, I was just done. I was done playing the game. Uh, I didn't really care what happened to me. So, but I did. I did get an honorable discharge because of that. After about two months in there, my contract ran out, and I got an honorable discharge. Um, so then I was, you know, all of a sudden I was a civilian. I went from being in what was effectively kind of like a low security prison to the next day being on the street. Um, and I had everything I owned in my 1996 Saab 900 S. Yes, Saab 900 S. Yeah. My little $1,000 beater I had. Um, and I had nowhere to go. I had no family. Um, no, I had a little bit of money. Um, and what I did have was a GI Bill. And the GI Bill is kind of what you do when you get out of the Army, because it pays you a housing allowance, the same housing allowance that I didn't get when I was not allowed to live in the barracks. Um, it's basic allowance for housing. It's a cost of living adjusted by area housing allowance. Um, so I had to apply for colleges. It was kind of late in the year. There was only three or four colleges in the country that were still accepting applications. Uh, one of them was Oregon State University, and that was the best out of the bunch. So I just I applied. Like on my laptop in a McDonald's, um, and then I got in my car and I drove to Oregon, um, and I got into the university uh, very shortly after, and I got an apartment and I went to Oregon State University, um, and that's how I got here. Um, so yeah, at Oregon State University, um, I studied political science. Um, I uh, I organized with the DSA chapter there. Um, that's how I got into DSA. Uh, the DSA chapter spread it up while I was there. Um, and uh, they were very successful, uh, so um, I went to where the people was. You know, I, I was I was trying to organize, trying to be a good socialist, trying to um, get organized with other working class people. And DSA was where the working class people was at. So I went to this newly formed DSA chapter, mm. uh, where I initially um, I founded and co-chaired the anti-imperialist working group, um, and then I served as the chapter treasurer, and then eventually the chapter co-chair, um, and then. Um, after attending Oregon State University, uh, I moved to Portland, where I came up here, and I um, became chair of the Electoral Working Group, um, and I ran our DSA little uh, legislative advocacy team, which is basically just lobbyists without any money, so we're not very good lobbyists, um, and that's kind of how I got here today. That's that's how I made it here. Actually, that's a hell of a story. Sure is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I yeah. Sorry if that got a little dark there. No, I don't, I don't. No, 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 I don't, no this, I don't this is fine. Like, this is yeah. no, you know, please. That's the thing. At some point, um, I mean, I did want it's because I like episode because I, I always have. It's the fun thing about having like a, effectively being a one man operation with this thing is um, I can do come up with a topic and just do it. Uh, one of the, I was thinking of if everything from like either like DSA vets or even like just like trans vets because I was wondering, um, do you want to talk at all? Or do you want? Is it, is it just like a whole other uh, episode topic about? Um, I want to say the, the for it's like, almost like the, the utility of 
just the fact the military is there and it is um, in some cases, you know, if you're like a you know a queer or trans kid somewhere, it's like the only it is almost literally the only way out. Is like, you know, fuck. I guess I, I'll go join the navy or something. Um, something. Would you want to talk about that at all, or is that something for like a whole other episode? Sure, maybe just briefly. Um, yeah. So trans people serve in the U.S. military at twice the rate of cis people, um, and the reason for that, you know, isn't because trans people are super patriotic and love America and all the great rights that we don't have here. Um, it's because we don't have anywhere else to go. We um, we get kicked out of our houses as children. Um, one in three trans people have been homeless in their lifetimes. Um, we're three times as likely to be Im- impoverished as cis people. We're three times uh, as likely to be unemployed as cis people. Um, so the military is just like to a lot of people a social safety net. And it's unfortunate that a lot of trans people like myself don't understand or acknowledge the problematic implications that come when you join an imperialist organization um that now you become that middle bully you know now you become you know you you're forced into this by by the heteropatriarchy um or other power structures capitalism etc and then now you're upholding imperialism so it's um it's it's how they get you you know it's it's a it's how um it's how imperialism and capitalism the heteropatriarchy work together to to uphold one another. Um, that's why we can't we can't dismantle one without dismantling all of them. Right. All right. Let's take a quick break. On a slightly lighter note, and we're back because in this this also ties into I guess both um, things, things that both that uh, hey, you and Brian have mentioned before um, in terms of movement building, but also um, electoralism because of that same primary vote in eleven months. It's 11 months, isn't it? Oregon primaries are May, mid-May, are they not? May 19th, 2020, so less yes. than 11 months. Yeah, a, a less than 11 months. Um, we're going to have both the uh, the, the Democratic, Democratic state House seat, but also the Democratic presidential candidate. And so I was wondering if, uh, as a final topic, can y'all talk about the utility and the movement building potential slash not even already ingoing uh, of that the Bernie campaign. Well, I mean, not so much just the guy, but just the campaign himself. The campaign as a thing can um, just talk about the utility of the, of having that as a as a phenomenon. Do you want, do you want me to start? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I wish I had my bullet points in front of me, but I think there's a lot of different cases to be made <laughs> for uh, you know. Bernie's like well, Bernie's campaign on its own, and then DSA's engagement in Bernie's campaign, hmm. um, which I think are kind of two different questions. But um, why is it just if nothing else, it's just something of like just the like like it, um, ma- the the mass the the utility of ma- the mass spectacle that is a presidential campaign for yeah. you know. Well, I think yeah, I think you know we just have to accept that like billions of dollars will be lit on fire in this presidential campaign. Um, and it is like you know an unmatched spectacle in terms of like you know all different types of media across the planet um, and uh, you know it, it is an opportunity to uh, bring whatever politics um, people want into um, the American consciousness um, in a way that is I think a pretty kind of unmatched megaphone Um I think, you know, Bernie, uh, as a candidate, uh, you know, he, you know, grew up in political organizing and, um, you know, uh, was politicized at a young age as a socialist. Um, 
you know, I think his politics have evolved over the years as he's, you know, he's been in Congress for what, 20 to between 20 and 30 years now. Um, 20 odd. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's this tension inside the left about all, oh, and actually among liberals too, uh, you know, especially related to the, uh, FDR, uh, references in the last speech he gave two weeks ago um just talking about oh oh that's not democratic socialism that's new deal liberalism that bernie is advocating for um and uh just like i guess i think we need to see the value of a candidate who even though he is you know supporting policies that are like new deal liberalism which by the way we never achieved um it brings the word democratic socialism into in touch with so many more people and just gets so many more people to wonder about what it is and to um shed some of the cold war uh kind of associations um you know it it you know i think uh comrade eli said last night probably more succinct way to put it is um you know bernie sanders is a gateway drug um for socialists and um, people with developing socialist politics. Um, I think, hit you know, his campaign just is a organizing platform for politicizing people around democratic socialism and what socialism means in America. Um, and I know that was that was pretty rambly. So if you have more pointed questions, yeah, and, and, yeah. and fighting about it pedantically online because why oh, not? Yeah. That's what leftists do best. Paige. Um, yeah. So I think in in Oregon, I think the. I think socialist organizers in the left and DSA should relate to the Bernie campaign dependent on the material conditions of their communities. Mm. Here in Oregon and in Portland, uh, I think we need Bernie more than Bernie needs us. Um, Bernie's going to win Oregon almost certainly. I mean, he's going to have to, of course, you know, uh, him and his campaign are going to have to put in the work uh, as usual, but they're expected to win Oregon. They won Oregon by a large margin uh, in 2016. We, Yeah, uh, Rachel and I were at that, that very first... Uh, Moda Center rally summer 2015 I think when he was doing like little test runs and we stood in line with and they filled they they fucking filled that place yeah yeah, yeah nice so uh, what is our role as DSA in Portland Oregon to the Bernie campaign it's not necessarily to help him win but we can use his campaign uh, to build a movement mm. because like I said the American working class where they're at is they think politics happens at the ballot box and they most of them think it only happens every four years when they vote for a president and if, if we can take what they like about Bernie and say hey um, you know do you you like Medicare for all what if I told you how cool unions are what if I told you you know we like Medicare for all too come Come join us, uh, you know, when we come out here. Come out, come join us for the Medicare for All and stay for the anti-fascist rallies, you know. Um, come come join us for the Free College for All um, and, and stay for the, you know, union salting, and the workplace salting. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that's, that's a great opportunity for us to, to meet the American working class where they're at and to go and um, not just support Bernie, but build that movement and use it... Um, as a way to, you know, connect with, you know, connect our community with, you know, the, um, the rest of, uh, you know, communities that maybe we, we don't reach, uh, communities that, um, you know, that are on the, the geographic peripheral of the Portland, um, uh, uh, metro area. Cause a lot of Portland DSA is just really in Southeast Portland, um, 
you know, inner inner East Portland area. Um, but the Bernie campaign, of course, is going to be campaigning uh, all across Portland. So we're going to get to put ourselves in front of people who have we haven't been in front of before. Um, so that's what excites me about the Bernie campaign. I am excited about Bernie and Medicare for all and college for all. Um, but also, and what I think more importantly, I'm excited about the movement building because Bernie is a movement candidate. Right. Right. He's the only one who has, yeah, just like a different theory of change outside of the electoral system that we all know and love. Um, you know, I think uh, to touch on something Paige said and something I've been thinking about a lot lately is, you know, we, we really need to create as many on ramps as possible to the movement. Um, you know, if we want to grow, especially if we want to grow fast, which I think at this point is like necessary, given the time limits we're operating under. Um, you know, I think in the next 10 years, you're going to see the right uh, begin to use climate change as an organizing tool for their ends. And yeah, eco-fascism is coming if it's not here already. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so we we need to organize and we need to organize fast. Um, and so I think we need to um, scale. Yeah. And yeah, use as many on ramps as, as are available. And to his credit, like I said, you would uh, mentioned before, it's you know interacting with the uh, all the union action going on and getting invited to the um, getting invited to the the Walmart shareholder. Actually, I need to really, did they film that when he went to Walmart? Did yeah, I saw it online. Okay, yeah. I really need to watch that. Um, I mean, or, it's pretty you know pretty standard Bernie. Like, okay, <laughs> it was like a three minute video. Um, but, you know, it's fun to watch. Presidential candidate Bernie Sanders making some remarks at the Walmart shareholder meeting. Let's listen in. Let me thank the Walmart employee, Kat Davis, for introducing this resolution. And it states, and I quote, Resolved shareholders of Walmart urge the board to adopt the policy of promoting significant representation of employee perspectives among corporate decision makers by requiring that the initial list of candidates from which new nominees are chosen by the nominating and governance committee include hourly associates. The policy should provide that any third-party consultant asked to furnish an initial list will be requested to include such candidates, end of quote, end of resolution. Madam Chair, the issue that we are dealing with today is pretty simple. Walmart is the largest private employer in America and is owned by the Walton family, the wealthiest family in the United States worth approximately $175 billion. And yet, despite the incredible wealth of its owner, Walmart pays many of its employees starvation wages. Wages that are so low that many of these employees are forced to rely on government programs like food stamps, Medicaid, and public housing in order to survive. Can I jump in and mention something briefly? So, sure. Uh, uh, everybody, say hello to Brian. Brian, uh, I think it was been, he's been listening in quite intently uh, off mic. Brian, uh, uh, feel, uh, please uh, add your thoughts. Uh, yeah, Brian Denning, uh, Portland DSA member. Uh, I and just want to mention uh, the Bernie campaign, and one thing that I think is useful about that for the DSA, and just useful as a example, not only for what we can be doing, but what politicians can be doing in general on the electoral stage is Bernie's been organizing workers at every stage as he's going along in his campaign. And he's been going to places like Walmart, going to Amazon, going to Disney, going to some of the largest employers. So, for example, Walmart, Walmart is the largest employer of people of color in, in the United States. And a lot of people working at Amazon, look at these places, are often uh, women and minorities, 
or who are struggling to get through uh, every day and at their workplace. So it's not. So it's not like people talk about electability, or they talk about Bernie Bros, or they talk about how um, identity politics is a huge, you know, issue to work around, and how do you, how do you bridge that gap? I think you bridge that gap through connecting to everybody in the workplace and pulling them in and saying it's about you getting what you need also and not just about one group of people. And I think that's a huge, huge message that he's, that he's pushing forward. And I think it's something that we're going to be doing here as well is, is reaching out to all these communities, reaching out to everyone and saying, we want to know what's important to you and how we make that happen for you and for us together, all of us together to get a better world. So it's not it's not just minor things. I really appreciate the fact that he's focusing on unionizing, <coughs> focusing on getting things done. Focusing on all those things that are important for workers here in the United States right now. So, my two cents. Excellent. One brief moment. Oh, nope. I was going to say, Candy will be so jealous. Mm. <laughs> anyway, that, yeah, that's Leo. He complains a lot. One, one moment, I got to... I need, I need to put him either outside or in the other room. Otherwise, he will meow on okay. the mic. Still 0.7% yeah. lead for Caban. 0.7, but it like shifted up. Yeah, it's at 95 now. 95% of precincts reporting. Whew, this is a nail biter. Yeah, it's going to be too close to call tonight. I don't think we're going to have a live react. And we're back. My, if you've ever seen Kentucky Fried Movie, it's a joke from that. The closest thing we have to a running to an actual like formal segment on the show is recommendations of an, and endorsements. If there's anything you've been digging on lately that you would like to recommend to the viewing audience... You want me to go first? Go for it. Okay. Today, for the first time, I tried out these cool electric scooters around Portland. And I'm a little bit ashamed to admit that I had a lot of fun. And this electric scooter. Ah, the scoot scoots. I'm not going to name any brands because we're democratic socialists here. We don't, we don't, we don't want to pump up any brands and give corporations money. Um, but at least not for free. These, these electric scooters are a lot of fun. Um, I've never ridden a scooter or a skateboard in my life, uh, so I didn't know what I was doing. I jumped on one of these electric scooters for the first time, and uh, it was very scary. I was very scared. I didn't have a helmet on. <laughs> That's against the law. I probably shouldn't have admitted that. No, no, uh, it's, it's a it's a scooter in this town. Yes. No one wears this thing. Ted, Ted Wheeler is going to come after me now after he <laughs> listens to this podcast. He's going to. Yep, I didn't wear a helmet, Ted Wheeler. What are you What are you going to do about it? <laughs> just direct message him that. Yeah, I'm just kidding. I definitely shouldn't have said that. Yeah, he's got he's got cops. Um, <laughs> this is true. But anyway, so yes, it was very fun. A little bit scary. Hmm. Fifteen miles an hour. It feels real fast. To me, anyway, um, and yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm real into it. Um, I'm real, real into it. But I don't want to name any brands because we don't like to promote brands. But just the, yeah, just the, um, if you're listening to this in a uh, major, probably what not, these things have to have have shown up in like the UK and in Europe yeah, by now. Yeah, they countries. are. Yeah, okay. It's a say. So if you live in a uh, in a somewhat major city, you've probably seen the scoot scoots around and. Um, and as always, folks, if you're going to pitch them into large bodies of water, please uh, do the, the, the earth a, a, a solid and strip out the batteries. Uh, also, you shouldn't throw them into, bo- into large bodies of water. If you want to take parody, direct parody. action, <laughs> if you want to take direct action against these companies, which I, I support direct action against corporations, throw them in recycling bins, not, not the river, and take the batteries out first. Right. Mm, good point. Um, recommendation. Yeah. So I'm. You know, the one I had in my head is defying this whole uh, not using brands uh, principle. Um, oh, no. 
I don't, I don't know. know if I'm allowed to say that. No, go for it. Okay. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm going to judge you. I mentioned okay. you. I mean, we talk about Netflix shows on here. It's just like, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, this is going to sound dorky, but I've been really digging on uh, Airtable lately. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was skeptical at first, <laughs> but it's... Well, no, you're right. This That was that was dorky as fuck. <laughs> you yeah. made me feel so much better about the e-scooters. I felt lame as shit yeah, talking I, about e-scooters. But you're literally talking about spreadsheets up in here. Yeah. Spreadsheets. It's, I was, I'm very impressed with this software. That's, it's great. That's okay. I am. <laughs> it's I mean, a great organizing tool. Yeah. I mean, it's not socialism if there's no spreadsheets. And the more yeah. spreadsheets there are, the more socialist it is. Yeah. I mean, this is yeah. known. I mean, Karl Marx probably said that. Yeah. And doodle polls. Yeah, yeah. I will go. The thing I've been uh, actually enjoying most of our uh, two uh, two recently released uh, video games. One is called Outer Wilds or The Outer Wilds. I can't remember what the actual thing is. It is a, a, a strange and very um, not so twee, but it's very a, a nice little handcrafted kind of small little in, uh, almost indie team where you play a um, you play not quite a spacefaring race. It's more of a thing of it, um, you are you are exploring your little uh, your little solar system um, and seeing what uh, you know what the uh, the progenitors who were there before you what they actually left and you're kind of it's it's effectively it is a, a game about Xeno architecture. Not Xeno architecture. Mountains of Madness is about Xeno architecture. No, this is much more about Xeno archaeology, about discovering and uh, learning about uh, past civilizations as you kind of fly around in your little lunar lander, handcrafted, wood paneled spaceship. It is uh, very cute. It is uh, very short, and there's a lot more uh, time looping involved than you would expect. The other thing I've been uh, digging on a lot is. For those of you who uh, were big fans of certain Castlevania games, one of the main creators, um, a guy named Yoji Igarashi, I believe I'm hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, has finally uh, put out a game that was kickstarted. It was effectively a, n a new version of his classic, what they call Metroidvania games, of a uh, new version of Symphony of the Night and all the uh, all those great Castlevania handheld games. The game was called Bloodstained Ritual of the Night. Or something like that. I think it's like that. I can't remember. It's effectively. It's yeah. It's it's that kind of a thing. Instead of, um, it's to, it's to the point where they even use the same lettering as they did last time, only with like you know one or two things off. It, but it's effectively. It's it's a it's a full on like Metroid video game. Uh, you collect a lot of things. You you fight a lot of monsters. Um, a lot of the voice acting is deliberately over the top. Um, it is um. There's far more cat content in there than I expected in that you fight. There's at least one demon cat and one demon puppy in terms of like literally a monster is like this huge puppy head that comes that barks after you and chases you around the screen. And also because it's a Kickstarter, a Kickstarter game, one of the Kickstarter tiers, people could put enough money into it and get their own like um Kind of like they would get their own portrait, like a custom portrait in the game because it takes place in this castle and like, you know, the like fine portraiture on the wall that they used for backers. Someone um, paid enough, but the portrait they submitted was of their tuxedo cat. So you have like this nice little like wall portrait of this uh, tuxedo cat in Victorian finery. Uh, so, yeah, that's the uh, it's a it's a it's a lot of fun. All right, plugs. Where can folks find you? Do you have any, uh, what upcoming events do you want to tell people about? If you are involved in Portland DSA already, or are considering getting involved in Portland DSA, um, we're gearing up for uh, several campaigns, uh, including Pages in Oregon House District Forty Two, in the heart of Southeast Portland. 
um, as well as the Universal Preschool Now uh, campaign, which is a uh, ballot measure that's going to go to the ballot in Multnomah County to raise uh, the top marginal tax rate uh, enough to create a uh, universal preschool for all, um, kids under, under... Starting at age four. Starting Just at age, age four, but then expanding beyond that uh, yeah. to younger as well in future years, but starting with age four. Starting with age four uh, in Multnomah County. Um, so that's really exciting. And then on July 14th uh, at the Portland DSA general meeting, we'll be voting on a potential Bernie campaign plan. And so that's also really exciting. So if you're interested in getting involved in any of that stuff, uh, we'll be we'll be having a general meeting on the 14th. And let's look on our Twitter or on our website. There's lots of ways to get involved. Excellent. Thank you. Paige, do you have any particular dates or things uh, ways that folks can get a hold of you? Sure. Our campaign, uh, you can find more about it on our website, page2020.com. That's P-A-I-G-E, Papa Alpha India Golf Echo 2020.com. Um, I keep forgetting that, go- that G is golf. And if you would like to donate, you can do so on there as well. We're up against a lot of corporate money. My opponent is funded by the fossil fuel industry. He's funded by Nike. He's funded by Realtor and Landlord Lobby. Um, All the hits. And we're going to get outspended by a large margin um, because I am running a 100% people-powered campaign with no corporate money um, powered by small individual donors. Um, So uh, you can find a donation link at page2020.com. Uh, no donations too small. Every little bit helps and is very, very greatly appreciated. Yeah, and outside of donating, we're going to be building a canvas operation. So even if you don't have money, um, if you have some time you want to give us to help knock on doors of our neighbors, um, talk about socialism and talk about Paige's vision for the state of Oregon, um, yeah, we'll be gearing up this summer, going into the fall and next spring. So. There's a volunteer form on the website as well. Yeah, Excellent. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, great. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I'm helping out with is we're going to, you've heard of uh, free brake light clinics happening elsewhere in the country put on by DSA chapters and other affiliated groups. We are having one of these in Portland. It is going to happen the first Saturday of July, which means I need to really get this goddamn episode out in time. It is, uh, we have a free brake light clinic at the first Saturday in July, July 6th. Uh, from 11 to 4 at the corner of Northeast MLK and Alberta. It's going to be at the Open House co-working space at 5020 Northeast MLK. Um, it's one of those things where, if, you know, we want, you know, it's kind of a thing where folks got to bust a taillight, just pull up, and it'll get changed for free by, um, I think I, I, I'm actually going to be working on, I think I'm going to be, uh, yeah, a couple of us here, uh, Brian and I are going to both be both there either uh, helping with logistics or actually helping with repairs. But it's, it's one of those projects where uh, kind of like mutual aid of making sure, you know, us helping each other. And I'm really bad at mutual aid talk. I'm not an anarchist. Um, it's a good buzzword. It'll, you hit them. The yeah. anarchist will like that you said it. Yeah. yeah. This is the, it's, uh, I, uh, mutual aid, you know, us helping ourselves and uh, reducing, uh, reducing interactions between, um, marginalized popula- uh, populations in Portland and our lovely uh, police department. And so that is one of them. Again, that's a free break light clinic going on at uh, Saturday, July 6th uh, from 11 to 4 corner in uh, Northeast Portland corner of MLK and Alberta. The there's all the Maryland Buck abolitionist abolitionist co- uh, coalition collective. I can't remember what the last order. They, they have also put some on and they're going to be putting some more on too. Hopefully we will be able to strike up a working relationship where 
um, I think between DSA and then we'll be able to, you know, take turns, like alternating on months, putting these on to kind of like, you know, at different places around Portland to help out a lot of folks. So hopefully that'll work on. Can I just say I'm sorry to anarchists that I made a joke about mutual aid? I I didn't mean it. I love mutual aid. No, that's the, it's okay. <laughs> it's, 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 it's half the. I mean, that's the fun thing about about uh, I'm also I'm not only host. I'm I'm editing this, which means I can go back and like you know, uh, trim out all of my uh, my more egregious fuck ups. Oh, it's okay. You can leave. You can leave it in. Yeah, it was true. a good joke. That's true. Yeah, but I just want to make clear that it was that yeah. I, I don't mean an anarchist. I love y'all. Indeed. Um, any, okay, for, um, that's um, that's pretty much it. Uh, it's, if uh, they gave contact info, let's see. Okay, once again, if um, if you'd like to, I guess if you have any uh, questions, comments, or suggestions for good Korean places around Portland to eat, you want to get a hold of us here at the show. The email is givingthemike at gmail dot com. Um, we do have a Patreon, so if you would like to donate and help us make this thing, uh, you can help us for as little as a dollar a month. And if you subscribe, three dollars a month you can get access to advance. You, you can get uh, early released episodes. We've released a couple things. It's pretty much because, like, a lot of times I will put out an episode in parts. If you want to hear the whole thing all at once, you know, subscribe to there. I'm a horrible pitching. What can I say? Find us on Facebook. You know, like, subscribe, and share, and all that stuff at facebook.com/slash giving the mic. I am out of things to say. Last words, anybody? Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, Jerry. Good night, folks. Someone be do me a favor and let this idiot cat out. Otherwise, uh, he will meow repeatedly. And like I said, it's not a uh, it is not a true leftist podcast unless you hear a cat meowing in the background and and the host has a slight speech impediment. So we qualify for uh, both of those. Oh, okay. So it can't go to a runoff according to this. So whoever wins wins. All right. Plurality. Well, Waited on bated breath. Uh, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, this is uh, no, no. It's, it's, uh, good content. Oh shit. <laughs> 49% reporting, and it's within 0.6%. Oh, boy. <laughs> All right. Um, oh, basic uh, basic format. I was thinking it's about 6.15 right now. Um, Just breathed really loud, loud into the mic. Yep. Is... I think we're going to have to do a live react to the Kamala election <laughs> results on this show. If you like the, uh, <laughs> compelling content. Um, but it's, uh, the overall format is, I mean, it's a st- standard, like, you know, broadcast uh, potty, uh, potty uh, podcast uh, like interactions. You know, do introduction, go round. Um, uh, I think the basic format was it's like Paige talk to you for like you know like like I said twenty odd minutes, and then you can either hang out and and join us for the rest of it, take it off take off if you like, and then we're also going to talk to Brian too about. Um, Part of it is, is, is and I get, well, I guess everybody can kick in too, but it's just kind of like why, uh, why would act, you know, why, why would you actually want to run an electoral candidate in that kind of a thing? I just want to go on the record that Paige is uh, much more well qualified to answer this than I am, but I'm happy to go off. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, we wanted you here as a surrogate, so it's not me saying some of these things. Got it. Right. Um, yeah. So but yeah, like I said, this yeah. is like, you know, we're a uh, hyper, um, 
Is it really hyper formal here? <laughs> what do we got here? I think I will actually just stay for the whole thing. I don't. Oh, cool. I'm, I have time. Okay. I didn't expect to have time, but I do. Okay, cool. Awesome. Yeah, it is. And no, if uh, you had time or not, but um, uh, but I, I have some uh, like rough idea for questions or anything. But it's one of these things where it's um, the um, I don't know if we we don't really have hard and fast topics so much as we have beginning vectors and just kind of wander our way towards uh, hopefully something interesting. Like the use of the word vector. I took I took more um, an engineer took more uh, uh, an aerospace engineering student who took more than a few math classes so it's oh, okay. uh, some of the terms uh, hung around. I respect that. I was also an engineering student. I went to college. <laughs> Fucking nerds. I didn't graduate, but I went. There you go. 